the main mechanism for semaglutide is that it literally, and this is its function as a um, glucagon like, like peptide one is the incretin molecule. Um, it basically coordinates with insulin to adjust appetite and slow digestion um, so that you can bring food in at a pace that can be accommodated by insulin and taken in and utilized as needed, right? So it's sort of a, an orchestra of hormones. It's not just insulin gets released. You've got glucagon at play, got somatostatin at play, um, and we've got these incretins at play at well, and glucagon-like peptide is there to adjust appetite so you know when it, when you're satiated, when you know when to stop eating. Um, that also impacts your satiety, so when you want to get, when you get hungry again, and it slows gastric emptying. What's going on, guys? On this episode of Muscle Mind, Scott Stevenson is going to dig into some bodybuilding science. For starters, semaglutide, probably the most popular fat loss agent on the market right now. Then he'll explain why grapefruit juice has such a profound effect on metabolizing certain compounds. We'll discuss fat loading. I mean, we all know about carb loading, but we're going to talk about loading the triglyceride stores of the muscle. Then we're asked the differences between pharma GH and generic GH. Could generics theoretically be just as good? We're asked a little bit about the history of DC training. And Scott has a study that shows we might not be training as hard as we think. If you're new to our content, we have several bodybuilding podcasts that come out each week. I encourage you to subscribe if you want to learn everything you can about this sport. We're not here to tell you what to do. Instead, we want to educate you so that you can make your own informed decisions. And if you enjoy listening to Scott talk today, then check out his book, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. I'll have links to that as well as timestamps below for each one of our topics. All right, guys, let's get to the show. And all of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK for additional savings. Have any, if you have any questions uh, about any of their products, hit me up. I'd be happy to talk to you about them. We're brought to you by Strom Sports Nutrition for those of you in the UK and supplementsource.ca for our Canadian people. We are back. Scott's back with us. We've got uh, a bunch of questions that you guys had left. We've got some questions from Patreon, and we are going to tackle them today. Scott, welcome back to your program, man. <laughs> to my program. Yes. Hey, welcome back to the world. You've been actually, doing a lot of podcasting still, right? Yeah, I did. This is my third podcast this week, actually. You're a busy um, man. I've got several pending. I literally have four others pending, but I kept on. I was sick, and I was out of town, and yeah. yada, yada, yada. So I kept on postponing, but I'm available for podcasting now. All right. So, so um, we have a bunch of questions, like I said. Oh, by the way, guys, if you want to figure out and find any of those podcasts that Scott's been on, because he's always doing shows, uh, I think the best way is probably to follow your Instagram. Would you suggest that? And that's that's is I it, try to repost them there when I when I can. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And is it Fortitude Training or is there an underscore in there? Fortitude underscore training. That's what I thought. All right. Let's jump straight into these. We had one from Matt Blevins. Dr. Thirst Trap. <laughs> I'd love to hear, uh, I'd love for Dr. Thirst Trap to speak on semaglutide and bodybuilding. You just did an article recently uh, for the Mountain Dog site for this, right? It was a video Q&A, actually. Oh, okay. Because this is just the hot topic, right? Yeah. Everyone's, it's all over. So, so people have to remember, I don't have a TV, so I miss out on the news 
Yeah. I don't, I don't spend like a lot of time on Facebook. So I miss a lot of the things, but I do keep on hearing like everyone it's all over the place. Everyone's using semaglutide. It's being prescribed now. Yes. Um, so I won't go through all of what's on John's site. Um, the idea is to support John and his wife, Mary and, um, Andrew and all those guys are there, Chris, RJ, who's the web guy, RJ and I chat every once in a while. Yeah. Um, but I've got, I think it's like a 40 minute long video Q and a, so I went through and I, I gathered up the majority of the research and kind of the basic stuff and looked at the mechanisms, that kind of thing. Um, so the main thing, there's maybe some evidence that, um, semaglutide, semaglutide and liraglutide are the two GLP one agonists. So that's one of the ingredient molecules that gets released alongside insulin when we eat. There's, if you look at the ways in which you're going to lose body fat, you've got obviously spending more than you take in has to happen some way, shape, or form. You can have things that impact your metabolism, can things that impact your appetite, and then your eating behavior. So you simply eat more. You can have things that impact your activity. Obviously, if you go into cardio or your knee's higher, yada, yada, yada. The main mechanism for semaglutide and liraglutide, and semaglutide seems when you compare the two, seems to be the more effective of the two is that it literally, and this is its function as a glucagon um, like, like peptide one is the incretin molecule. Um, it basically coordinates with insulin to adjust appetite and slow digestion um, so that you can bring food in at a pace that can be accommodated by insulin and taken in and utilized as needed, right? So it's sort of a, an orchestra of hormones. It's not just insulin gets released. You've got glucagon at play, got somatostatin at play, um, and we've got these incretins at play at well, and glucagon-like peptide is there to adjust appetite so you know when it, when you're satiated, when you know when to stop eating. Um, that also impacts your satiety, so when you want to get, when you get hungry again, and it slows gastric emptying. Um, so... It has a really pretty profound effect um, just given to people because they just don't eat as much. They just, yeah. It just basically kind of takes the place of willpower, you might say. Yeah. People just eat less, and that's eat less, move more. It's not affecting the exercise side of the equation. It's not affecting – it doesn't have a, a, a thermogenic effect. That it, There's some evidence that maybe it does. Um, at least in one study, uh, there was slower – the metabolism was slowed, basal meta- metabolic rate was slowed in the, I think it was semaglutide, maybe it's liraglutide um, group, but they also lost a lot of weight. And when they relativized mm. that to fat-free mass, it was the same. Okay. So, and if you look at some of the direct mechanistic studies, it, it may have an impact on increasing metabolic rate. But it's not like, it's not like DNP, right? It's not going to just turn you into a blast furnace or whatever. Yeah. So it, it, it's the type of thing that... Um, and I said this in my dog crap, or sorry, my, my mountain dog um, video. It's the type of thing that the pharmaceutical companies love. This is a this is a really, really ideal drug for them because they want to keep just like any good drug seller, drug dealer. They want to <laughs> keep you buying their product. And and you see, if you look at the research, that the effect is reversible. Sure. You know, you, you take the drug, you, you drop weight, and then when you come off it and they switch people to placebo, they slowly start to gravitate back towards their their pre um, their previous weight before the study started. 
So it's the type of thing that will produce a weight loss that will then sort of require if you want to maintain that and you haven't done any, and it happens really, that's the thing. It happens without any adjustments. Some of these studies, they've given people like some exercise and dietary advice. Uh So they sort of say, here you go. These are the things you should do to lose weight. And, but they don't follow up with that. That's been the model that I've seen used at least a, a couple of times. Well, they still so get they results. A, you know, why, why, why do any work when they can get the, the results, right? Without having thing. done any yeah. cardio, without stopping eating pizza. You know, do anything. So, so then you become literally dependent upon that drug yeah. for your newfound weight loss results, yeah. um, which is reversible. And, and um, there's some side effects. You know, people get nauseated, diarrhea. There's some issues there, you know, because it's impacting you're artificially manipulating the way in which your body is, is handling these handling food stuff. Right. Um, and there's like at least one study showing potentially increased risk of, I believe thyroid cancer. Oh really? People that have previously had thyroid cancer. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen some, I've heard other than just talking to people. Cause when I was asked this question, I, I literally the information comes back to me like, well, what do you think about this drug? Right. Mm-hmm. And some doctors are just saying any type of cancer. They're thinking, hey, watch out. I don't okay. know what evidence exists for that. I looked on the package insert, I think, for semaglutide. It was specific to thyroid cancer. It may be in liraglutide. I can't remember. You said if you've had a history of or, you know. Yeah, that would mean a family history or a personal yeah. history, right? Okay. Right, yeah, okay. Um, I don't know if those are doctors just being um, extra careful. Yeah. You know, saying, hey, any type of cancer. If it causes one type of cancer, it can cause another type of cancer. Yeah. It's not necessarily true mechanistically, but I don't know that we that we know. I didn't find, and I and I didn't. This was supposed to be a fifteen minute video for John Side, and of course it was being forty. Yeah, of course. So, but you got to dig much further than what you actually present. But I didn't do- go that deep to find what would the mechanism be whereby this would be a cancer causing carcinogenic agent. Okay. So, so so like as far as bring it back to bodybuilding um, for the layperson, it's like ah. You got to watch out, you know, unless you want to just take this drug for the rest of your life. We don't know what the long, long, long-term side effects are. They've gone out to two years of studying this stuff. Yeah. Um, seems pretty safe. But for a bodybuilder, this could be um, um, a willpower substitute to some degree. Yeah. Because, you know, you get down to where you're four or six weeks out and your hunger is just killing you. Um, just take this stuff and then your hunger is gone. Make it really easy. Um yeah, make I've, it easy for some people to over diet too. Go ahead, oh, sorry. absolutely. I was just going to yeah. say, from a practical uh, perspective, you know, I, the way I've looked at it is just like we do with any other pharmaceutical or supplement that we use. You know, that I have the mindset of use the least amount that we can use to get an effect. And I've heard, uh, or I should say, I've seen on social media people talking about taking much higher doses. Um, I've, I started people, people who've wanted to use it, clients that I've worked with who said, Hey, you know, I want to give this a try. Um, we've started at 0.25 milligrams per week, which is lower Mm -hmm. than average. We've then, Mm -hmm. after we see that things are all right, digestion is okay. So far, nobody's had digestive issues at that little dose and they feel it Mm -hmm. a little bit. Like they notice a little bit of appetite reduction. And then we go to a half a milligram and I've literally left it there. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen really good results with people who were otherwise like resistant to fat loss. People, one guy I'm thinking of in particular had like a lot of loose skin and a lot more body fat than he realized. You know, he was, I think like 240 Mm -hmm. 
and he wanted to bulk, but we needed to get him down to like 210 first. You know what I'm saying? Right. Before he could do that. Uh, some people, it's just like if they if they go into a surplus, they they gain fat easily. You know, um, mm-hmm. he, he is the one of those ratio. guys. Yeah. 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 So he's one of those guys. And, and I think for people like him, it could be really effective. And and um, another guy who has just struggled with contest dieting, like he's a good bodybuilder and he's been really successful, but he struggled in anything past like that 12 week mark. Once he gets super lean, like all bets are off. And he did binge. Mm-hmm. He went off and binged, which he's done previously. But when he did, he couldn't eat as much. It limited his ability oh, yeah. to, to go off the rails. So mm-hmm. we did a show. And then from there, he did like two or three more shows on his own. He's, he was still competing. I think that he stayed mm-hmm. on it. So I think for him, yeah. it could it could be a game changer. For a lot of other people, it, it might not be uh, you know necessarily that great of a thing. And I know that women are using it for... Um, like hyperandrogenism, like the PCOS type stuff. That's, um, uh, mm. in fact, Victoria's Drop talked about. Uh, well, well, to to control the whole insulin thing, the way that you mm-hmm. would use, like they've used right. metformin for uh, for that type of stuff. And right. I, I'm trying not to say PCOS because Victoria would get mad at me if I just blanket said she finds that to be like too much of a blanket term. I think, uh-huh. um, but hyperandrogenism, we'll say. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but they're, they're finding good success with that, too. And they've been doing that for years now. I think it wasn't yeah. until, like, Kim Kardashian started talking about it that the general public found out about it. And now I see clinics popping up where you can go in each week and pay 50 or or $100 to get your shot of it Yeah. Uh, versus... Uh, it's just highway of robbery. Too, it really is. You know? Go to uh, um, Amino Asylum. Use code THINK. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, these were uh, uh, initially their, their diabetic drugs. Yes, that yeah. was their, their their first approved for that. So there's a whole list of GLP one agonists. Um, you can also inhibit the enzyme that breaks down GLP one, but only those two semaglutide, lyrglutide. At least as of right now, as far as I know, those are the only two that are approved for weight loss. Yeah, so because okay. they're just seeing that, you know, tremendous effect. So yeah, it'll help with it'll help with insulin sensitivity for sure. I should pull up the clip. Back in 2016, I did an interview with Colette Nelson. And mm-hmm. we did a deep dive on insulin. And at the time, a lot of people were, u- most people were using like the Milos approach. And the only people I had heard publicly speak about using microdosing of insulin or, or long, long acting insulin was Colette and mm-hmm. um, uh, Amin Ali. He was the other guy. You know, Amin mm-hmm. was saying to use like, you know, two, three units with him each meal versus, you know, the huge like Milos approach. And at the end of that interview, she said to me, and we got to come back and do another podcast because she she worked for a company for a pharmaceutical company that that sold insulin, and she said there's mm-hmm. a new drug on the market. We got to talk about GLP one agonists because those things mm-hmm. are going to become huge in the bodybuilding mm-hmm. world. They're an insulin drug plus you'll get fat loss with it. And she said mm-hmm. so. We got to come back and do that. And then she never did a follow up with me, so we never talked about. Yeah, it. yeah. She's really really cool. She actually. Um one of the shows, one of the national level shows I did. Yeah. He even been, I got a gold's gym, Charleston shirt. Okay. Right now that I picked up, it may have been there, but she actually painted me. She was working oh. for, I don't know if it was protan. I don't want to say the wrong one, but yeah, I've been, it may have been liquid sunrise. I can't recall, but she actually painted me once. 
No kidding. Um, cool shit. Yeah, I think I, I, both times I went in, I managed to find her. She was awesome. She's super, super, super cool. Super that's nice. cool. She's from here. She's from this the, the, <laughs> the Detroit area, so she comes out here every oh, once in a while why. to visit that's family why she's and stuff. So cool. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah. So, oh, the one thing too that is, you know, like if someone's using this, and this is not my area of expertise, but if someone's like using this in in who has binging behavior. In his borderline bordering on disordered eating, yeah, um, that could create a complexity. That's absolutely, you know, worth addressing at least. Like, it's like, oh, I mean, I'll never like literally. This was in the '90s. This was like I remember. This was on like um, miscellaneous dust fitness that's weight. Oh no, it was on a um, a ketogenic dieting um, uh, group that I was on. Lyle McDonald was on there, and there was a, a young woman. And she was, she had an eating disorder and she was using creatine, taking creatine in massive doses to give herself osmotic diarrhea. So she was purging. Holy crap. With creatine and it was upsetting her stomach. Right. Yeah. And it was meaning it made it so she was less likely to binge. Yeah. So her binging and purging behavior became wrapped up with taking massive amounts of creatine because she'd give herself osmotic diarrhea. She didn't want to eat as much. So yeah. there's that there's that, that possibility too. If you got someone who you know is has a, a eating disorder potential, or they they've had disordered eating, add a drug in like this with with someone if they're being seen therapeutically, this could be something that could help them. Just like using an antidepressant, you know, with could be something to help you bridge past an issue because you can think straight. Right, right. A drug like this could, in the same way, in in the same vein, be something that would allow you to control the physiological side of the urges that you're having um, to some degree and dampen those things because of the reward centers in your brain being lit up by the binging and blah, 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 to the extent that you can then get a hold of, get a handle on what's going on and and then eliminate that or extinguish that behavior. So it could be a tool, a double-edged sword, right? It can cut for you or it could cut you back. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's thought. and the, I think that main take home point is just like you're saying that it's not permanent. You know that that you know yeah. at, at the end of the day you're still going to have to you eventually have to stop using it one day basically. Yeah, but will people? That's the thing. Like that's yeah. the concern. Like let's say you start like you've got a potential for cancer. Like you're one of those people you don't know you haven't screened yourself for it, and then you know you can't get cancer, and you know in the short term. Which is what this is. This is sort of about. It's a, like many things, you know. We're we're short term gratification oriented animals. Right. This will get you, you know, get you lean, get you ready for the stage, et cetera, et cetera. But you may do yourself some damage along the way potentially. Um, so it's just, you know, there's a there's a risk and reward to balance, like with any pharmaceutical. All right. Let's see what else we have here um, from Patreon. Nick says. Um, Topic for the next Muscle Minds. Um, I'd like a deep dive on grapefruit, how it works, extending drug half-life, effects on hematocrit, and other pros and cons. I've been having good results with it, making my drugs more potent and lowering hematocrit, but my liver enzymes seem to be higher. Uh, Not sure how it's all related or even if it's related. Um, I'd love a deep dive. Thanks for everything. I don't know if we can do a deep dive today, Nick, but I'd love to hear Scott's yeah, thoughts on this we, one. We need some slides and stuff to do the deep dive. Yes. So, um, naringin and naringenin, um, are the two compounds that are in grapefruit juice and they're in other citrus fruits, um, as well. 
And those inhibit, and I have this outlined in my book a bit, those inhibit what are called the P450 enzymes. And they're involved with um, the two, it's the first phase of liver detoxification. So you have a xenobiotic, some foreign compound that comes into your body. And the general process is that these P450 enzymes will in some way manipulate that compound so that then can be conjugated to another larger molecule like sulfated. Um, they put a glucose molecule on there, and then that can then be excreted out of the body. So it's kind of like, ah, we don't want that compound. We're going to manipulate it in some way with one of these P450 enzymes um, so that we can then tag it for disposal and get it out of here. So yeah. we, gotta, we got the manipulation is important first because there's so many different possible toxins that could come into our body or drugs in this case. <laughs> and grapefruit juice in particular inhibits um, – SIP, the cytochrome 3A4, which is responsible for, and I've read this, for metabolizing like 60% of the drugs that are available. Like it's it's involved with a multitude of the pharmaceuticals. So when you use grapefruit juice or use naringenin or ringen, there's, there's maybe some differences I can't recall, and I've looked at this in the past, but in terms of to what extent they inhibit that, and some of the other P450 enzymes. Um, you're going to put the brakes on this processing of those drugs. So what that means then is you take an X amount of a drug. Steroids are one of the drugs that are, that are um, processed by this particular P450 enzyme. Then you can't do as good a job of that because you, you, block the, you block the disposal pathway with the P450 enzyme being inhibited. And now you have higher levels of those drugs. So the idea would be then, ah, I can take in less of those drugs <laughs> because I'm going to have a greater area under the, under the curve, right? Or use less and get more out of them, so to speak. Um, some of the complexities there is there are genetic variabilities in these, in the isozymes, isoforms of these drugs or the relative, like probably better said, is the relative amounts of the various, and there's hundreds of these P450 enzymes. And some of them have duplicate functions. Um, so different people are going to have different impacts of grapefruit juice in a given amount on how they metabolize a different drug. It's going to be highly bio individual in terms of what impact that will have. So some people, let's say they're using it for D ball, the old school way was like, you know, you take D ball in the morning with grapefruit juice. You got to, instead of taking 20 milligrams, you take 10, get more out of it. Um, right. So that's, that was, that's the plan of attack. The thing that he's noticing with his liver enzymes being, and the reason liver enzymes, ALT, AST is probably what he's referring to. Those are the two main people to talk about. GGT, alkafos, those are also involved with. Um, is when the liver is stressed, part of what happens when you go through this process with the P450 enzymes is you produce, produce a lot of free radicals. Um, almost all the, the liver supplements that are, make your liver healthier um, have free radical quenching abilities. Okay. So silymarin, CLL cysteine, um, basically everything. That's that's what they're doing. They're helping fight this free radical stress that comes about from processing the toxins that your liver is handling. So if you if you inhibit um, CYP three A four, which is responsible for probably a good amount of the the drugs you might be using, pharmaceuticals you're using, that needs to be handled in some other way, right? Um, and your liver, if that's the primary enzyme that would normally be responsible, your liver may not have 
enzymes available to the extent that it would be uh. to produce what would to have the most efficient route for getting rid of those toxins. Okay. So let's yeah. say another enzyme, you know, under, under transforms to some degree, and but it doesn't do as it doesn't transform into something that can be conjugated as easily. Yeah. So you have more free radical stress as a result. Interesting. Of that, you're forcing you're forcing your your liver to go another route and perhaps upregulate those enzymes which aren't which aren't as easily upregulatable. Yeah. Um, because it's in because it's in it's it's encountering more of those drugs and doesn't have a very good way to dispose of them because you block the main exit route out yeah. by using the taking the grapefruit juice. So it makes sense that your liver would be more stressed. So you do maybe get, you know, more um, a greater area into the curve um, in terms of, you know, limiting that first pass phenomenon in your liver, let's say, but you could also be stressing your liver more. Um, so the idea there would be, uh, you know, that you might need to use more liver supplements hmm. to help offset that, you know, help with that. It's funny, um, there's also kind of an old school notion, I'm not suggesting anyone do this, um, but the old school notion was uh, whenever you take orals, don't take liver supplements to protect your liver while you're doing that. Oh, that I've heard be this what before. People would say. Yeah, you yeah, take it right? after. You take it after. You take right? it after, right? Yeah. And the idea is... You take the orals. You don't want a healthy liver because a healthy liver will will get rid of the orals. Yeah, right. Yeah. It'll break them down too rapidly. You don't. You want a. You want a sick liver. <laughs> you want a stressed liver so that more drugs. The more the drugs will be in your system, so you can get the affected you know actions of the drug. Wild. The, the, yeah. The desired impacts. Yeah. So yeah. people that was you know and probably they figured that out. So of course that's a catch twenty two too because when your liver <laughs> isn't happy then you're not hungry. Right. Yeah. So if you're trying I've to gain, it, yeah. So if you're if if you're pre-contest, that could be a good thing, right? It's like, okay, I'll take some anadrol and I'll destroy my appetite because my liver's not happy. Right. Um, but if you're trying to, if you have a stressed liver and you're trying to eat enough to make progress, just being toxic doesn't help. No. But then you can't eat enough, and a stressed liver is going to produce as much IGF one, potentially, uh. you know, impactful for growth. So it's a, definitely a marker of nutritional status. We know that. So, um, and the other thing he asked about was hematocrit. I've just been able to find one, one study and it was kind of, kind of cool. Um, there's a nice article I could send it if someone wants, wants to check and send them about some of the positives of Naringia and Naringia and their antioxidants themselves too. So there's some health benefits there, but there's one study, only one that I could find. And it suggested that it normalizes hematocrit. So people with low hematocrits, Lower than than normal or lower than average, it will tend to rise, be normalized okay. towards a oh, normal wow. value, and then if it's above average, it tends to bring them down. Huh. So that's just one study. Okay, that may not work for everyone in that way, but the I forget who asked the question, but he's he's he says brought his matricrit down. Nick, yeah. So Nick, yeah. So that's a story there, and you, I tell you what, if you look, like go on go on scholar.google.com. So. Make note of that. That's where you can, if you want to find out research, just type in your, whatever you're looking for, and you'll find the research there, and you can at least browse through the, the abstracts. And The thing that you, you're doing, potentially, with, with grapefruit juice is you're creating all sorts of potential drug interactions. Yeah, for sure. Right? You know, and if you've got, like, you've got some drugs that are impacted by it, some drugs that aren't, and let's say you're someone who, you, and I don't know this is the case, but just one that popped in my head, like some people don't do well with ephedrine and euhimbine at the same time. Mm. It just it just freaks them out. There may be a slow metabolizer of him being 
Yep. That's been demonstrated. There are outliers of that. I learned that so, that was my issue after, like, I, I, pieced, <laughs> I pieced it together, at least, after hearing you talk about that, that my okay. issue with Johambine is that I probably don't break it down really well. Yeah, so it's just saves in your system for forever, right? So yeah. imagine that situation, and I don't know if this is the case, but imagine that you use you're using grapefruit juice because you want to increase the half-life of your D-ball, whatever else, and you take you take ephedrine as well, and the, and you have tend to have a problem. You can handle it, but you tend to be a slow metabolizer of himbine, and you're okay because by the end of the day, the ephedrine's out of your system, and you just have the himbine there, and that you can handle. It's not so bad. But now you use the grapefruit juice, and now your ephedrine levels are upped as well. Yeah. Um, so now you've doubled up on two things that interact for you in a negative way because of the naringin, naringenin, and the grapefruit juice. So you could create all sorts of reap all sorts of havoc potentially because, like I said, like sixty percent of pharmaceuticals are metabolized by that particular cytochrome P450 enzyme. Yeah. Um, so you gotta like, I mean, unless you're doing like measuring drug levels, you know. Yeah. Um, if you're gonna have to be really, really, if someone wants to do this, do it. Do it under the direction of a physician, of course. But you'd have to be really meticulous to know, you know what's going on because some drugs wouldn't be affected and some drugs would be massively affected and what happens to your training partner might not happen to you and vice versa. Yeah, especially with everybody using blood pressure medications nowadays. You know, like it's become more yeah. a more normalized thing that you go on psycho mm -hmm. and you take a blood pressure medicine with it to you know, all right. that. So I my personal perspective, uh, you know, when I first learned about this, I thought it was an amazing hack to get more out of your D ball. Uh, but nowadays, I, I just would recommend personally, I don't want the I don't want the the variability that could go with that. I just would suggest staying away. Uh, real world mm -hmm. advice, real world experience. I just don't feel like it's worth it. If I wanted more D ball in my system, then I think the the most consistent way to do it would be to take more D ball. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, that's a little easier. Right. And, and you yeah. know what you're getting, you know what I'm saying? Versus I, I don't quite know what we're getting if we're using grapefruit juice to change the way our bodies, you know, break it down. Right, right. I mean, you could just go with, with one naringin and naringin or combination as a supplement. But a lot of the constituents, the phytonutrients in fruits and vegetables, they vary seasonally. Ah. And they vary. They, yeah. That's they interesting. Vary, yeah. Very, very yeah. in terms of source too. Yeah. Right. So you may go to your grocery store and they're not going to tell you, you know, this was sourced from, from this place this yeah. time and somewhere else. And, you know, they have poor soil or whatever else. They didn't get the shipment. It didn't make there. And you might end up thinking, oh, it's, it's a grapefruit. It's a grapefruit, you know, but you get a different grapefruit and it's got half the dose or twice the dose yeah. of those two constituents. Like, okay, so you've got That's that wild. all over the place. So you're doing, you're being really like, I'm getting my grapefruit from the same, same grocery store. And I'm getting this and I'm weighing my grapefruit. Everything else is the same, but literally, you know, that, that grapefruit looks the same, but it's from someplace 500 miles away, you know, yeah. with poor soil and blah, 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 compared to what you've been taking. So you're playing with fire a little bit. That's for sure. All right. Uh, Paige has one for us. This is something we did a whole podcast on some time ago. She said, and she saw it. She said, I know Dr. Scott did a podcast on fat loading into a show. Um, but do any of the other coaches, oh, she asked other coaches have experience with fat loading um, with with prep clients, especially females 
most information online is toward men. So I guess it wasn't toward you. I just saw your name and I grabbed the question. Mm-hmm. It's been mm-hmm. a while since we talked about fat loading, though. I found that absolutely fascinating because so much of what we mm-hmm. talk about is is carb loading. And I learned from you that we have triglyceride stores in the muscle that, and and I've seen it firsthand that if I've loaded somebody just with clean carbs, like, Hey, let's increase the carbs across the board for the day. The response they get from that is going to be different than if I were to use say a cheat meal that had carbs and fats. And obviously there'd be sodium in that too, but we'll say if I were to use carbs and fats versus just carbs alone, Mm -hmm. there's definitely a noticeable difference. And there's some interesting, I think you're, you're, um, Pointing towards this, there's some interesting interactions between muscle triglyceride stores and carbohydrate stores. Mm. So if you just load up with carbohydrate with zero fats, the muscle triglyceride stores will tend to be decreased. They'll tend to go down. Oh, really? A few studies that demonstrated that, yeah. So there's this idea that you know you would fat load to hold a carbohydrate loader. You would maybe eat like dirtier carbs to help hold the fat. Load. Yeah. And and there is some energy that goes into, if you just look biochemically at the steps, there is energy that goes into just stringing together the glucose to produce a glycogen chain. But glycogen is also bound to a protein called glycogenin. So there's a structure that is, is accumulated. You don't just see like carbohydrates, carbohydrate with this protein as well. <clears throat> so my thought has always been like maybe the way this system of assembling glycogen, glycogenin, um, has been uh, evolved over over the eons is one such that it relies upon internally stored energy stores, not necessarily glucose, but muscle triglyceride to do that. Because you see this really strange thing where muscle triglyceride will go down when you do a clean carb load. Hmm. Um, but if you just do a shitload like that, right, and you don't ignore the sodium for now, um, you can get a, a better filling effect. Yeah. So there's something, something for the, you want to get enough, Carbs are definitely the safest way to go, right? We know if you can put down a thousand grams of carbs a day, you know, or more, that's going to fill you up in most cases, even if you're starting at nil. But for someone who may be like, you know, they're going to bed, like let's say they weighed in at five o'clock, they made weight, and um, they're going to, they don't want to stay up all night and try to carb load, which a lot of people do. So they might have some, get some good high carb meals in and then might like have kind of a shitty carb meal. Um, with some fat in there too that might help to some degree um, I haven't this hasn't been completely exposed in terms of all the interactions there but there's there's an interesting give and take between muscle glycogen stores and muscle glycogen stores hmm. um, the coach that um, that comes to mind Jason Theobald mm-hmm. Scooby Snacks he does fat loading a good bit and he works with women as well um, I don't know how many nowadays but um, he's he does a good bit of fat loading um, and it's a really, it's, we didn't, I, I, the chapter NASM has a, um, what do they end up calling it? The physique coach certification that they came out with here this last year. Um, okay. And I wrote the chapter on peak week there. And because the Lily is such a paucity of evidence as far as fat loading, um, you know, we, we haven't seen it really work. Even there was a case study that Chris Bearcat did on himself. Um, and it's, a, he did some, there was some, he kind of went. He didn't go do a. It didn't do a strict enough pattern of peak peak week in order to drive anything from any fat loading you did. But we don't have any direct evidence as far as how well fat loading works. It's all indirect, suggestive evidence based on what might happen when you load fat in, 
get based on what we know in terms of stores, what they can be from a depleted to a full state. But, um, but they didn't want that section in there um, oh. because it's, yeah, because it's just too, too speculative. I wanted to include it from a practical standpoint um, because people are doing it, right? It's, it's yeah. happening. Yeah. And it's a safe way to avoid the water retention that can kind of come with the carb load if you don't have time to get rid of the water, but you want to load up. So yeah. it's sort of an in-between. Um, and if you have someone, and this is one of the most important things perhaps, if you have someone who's been eating, um, and women do do this sometimes, a low-fat, higher-carb diet mm-hmm. uh, as they as they came down, then their muscle triglyceride stores are going to tend to be tend to be lower because mm. they haven't been taking in much fat. There's someone who might benefit more so from a fat load because they may have higher glycogen levels, been eating more carbs, and they probably will have lower fat fat levels hmm. because they've been um, haven't been eating much fat, so they might benefit from a fat load. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's one of those that things you just sense. practice. You just just mess around with it and see what happens. Um, it's kind of cool because you can get a nice filling effect. It's not like you're putting on ten pounds, but you stay nice and dry. You do yeah. It, as long as you don't do any crazy with your sodium. It's one of the benefits of being ready early that you have that time that you can oh, do yeah. those practice loads versus trying to race in that last minute, right? That's the thing. People don't practice. People don't do a practice week or a practice run. That's the biggest mistake. All right. What else do we have here? One from Lee. Um, he says, I'd love to hear Dr. Scott, uh, what he has to say um, about a few HGH questions regarding generic versus pharma GH. Um, I know it's been theorized that generics could possibly be inferior peptides that just raise IGF. But uh, if you test high on uh, HGH serum test a few hours after taking 10 IUs, wouldn't this prove your generics are good? Um, along with HPLC test showing HGH purity um, and low to no dimer. So that last part is is going to be the thing that's probably going to be most important um, in HPLC test. So, yeah, he's talking about, I, I just call it a bioassay. People inject the 10 I use and they'll measure three hours later yeah. and do a serum test. That shows you got some GH in there, but it doesn't tell you um, what's going on with that molecule. So hmm. there can be some chemical changes to the, the growth hormone molecule. Um, it gets sulfated, things that happen just from um, poor manufacturing processes because you've got a generic and, you know, I'm not making these things in bathtubs, <laughs> but that's the kind of idea um, that they don't have to follow good manufacturing process that you typically would for producing pharmaceuticals or whatever the relevant process would be in those countries. Yeah. So you can end up, and, and I've and I've talked about this on a few podcasts. Now we have talked about it here too, but you can end up with um, generics that uh, test would test great with an HPLC. Maybe they have minimal levels of dimers, and the dimers may actually be active too to some degree. So what can happen to growth hormones? You can dimerize, so two growth hormone molecules can be stuck together, hmm. um, and they measure that. That's a typical thing. A lot of the times, if you, you go and this is from Casey's board, Casey Reed's board, LATS, um, the uh, the people who provide growth hormone there, they do a lot of these analyses. Mm. They look at growth hormone fragments, fragmentation, and dimers, and will tell you like how much, you know, 99% or 1% dimerized, what have you. And that gives you an idea of like when you're, oh, the growth hormone is there. It's like, it's kind of like you get, you know, how many broken eggs do you have in your, 
in your parting, right? Mm. Some are going to be fractured. Some are going to be whatever, stuck together. Those don't count as eggs, right? That's the idea. Gotcha. But each egg could also have be sulfated, could be otherwise chemically modified in a way that could impact, change the shape of the growth hormone, and then change how it binds to your growth hormone receptor, hmm. depending on which, which isoform you have. There are at least a couple of them that a person could have. The growth hormone gene can be, um, there's a particular exon that gets cut out or not. It'll change the shape of the receptor. It'll change the shape of your growth hormone binding protein as well. So how you bind up protein in the plasma and how it binds the receptor and then what it does, it's just like having a different antigen receptor. Its mm. impact will vary, potentially at least. Yeah. So, and I know I saw this, I don't know where it was, maybe a couple of weeks ago, but you guys were, because I was kind of trolling you guys like I do on, on Blood, Sweat, and Gear sometimes <laughs> when I, you guys come in. And um, Ken was talking about, he got a hold of some farm grade. Oh, yeah, GH. yeah. Yes. Yeah, and he said it's a world of difference for him. Right. So there's something there, you know. Um, he also started Thomas Arton at the same time. Oh, that's right. That's right. He did. And he did. yeah, he was like, uh, you know, my, uh, what was he saying? He's like, my VO2 as of the next day was much better and I'm getting better quality of sleep and all this other stuff. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh man, but you started this other thing at the same time. And now we, right. I can't, in my head, I can't be 100% certain. Yeah, that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. But, right. but, he, I, but, but many people have said that, you know, like it's just a, yeah. it could be all placebo, you know, it could be this, this, you know, this collective consciousness hypnosis that, you know, um, farm grade stuff is somehow better, but there are reasons to like, there's a study where they looked at some of these chemical modifications that can happen. And when they picked out generics, it varies yeah. um, the amount of antibodies that's produced mm. varies depending on which brand you have, you know, why that is. You know, yeah. So some of those are more immune reactive than others. So you know, we got a pretty big molecule there, and there's lots of places where it could be altered or changed in a way that wouldn't change what you see on a pure HBLC test necessarily. Yeah. So, um, I'm working yeah. with a guy who uh, I, I had two things. I'll, I'll say the other thing first, actually. So that episode of Blood, Sweat, and Gear it came off as being very pro high dose growth that everybody because mm. I have had so many people reach out to me, including clients who've been like, Hey, should I take more GH? Should I, uh, you know, should I be da- taking 10 units plus? And, mm-hmm. and, and I, it, it brought me back to a conversation we had previously about um, response to growth hormone. Like we know Andrew mm-hmm. Barry, he's talked about it. He is a great responder for him. Like he's gotten awesome results from GH. And so for him, he's like a huge advocate of it because it's done so much for him. And um, I just, I, I, I hearken back though to our previous conversation of that we might not all get the same results that Andrew got from 10 units. Mm-hmm. So the way I've tried to tell people is if you've taken three or four units and it hasn't changed your world, then the chances are that 10 units might not do any more than that, you know? Don't expect right. it to be like a whole different thing, you know? Mm-hmm. We just keep hoping, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. If I just took four grams a week, you know, maybe that would be enough <laughs> to just, you know, change me. Yeah, it got um, a, that podcast got a lot of people thinking about this. Yeah, and that, that always happens. Like, that's, you know, that that's happened so many times over the years. You've been around a long time, Scott, like me. <laughs> long enough you to see, see this come up. Yeah. Yeah. I saw there was a reaction video um, 
Adam Du, I think is the guy, is a German guy um, who's got a really, really great podcast. Super nice guy. Seems like he's yeah. doing a reaction video to Boston Lloyd talking okay. about, yeah, when he was up at like twelve grams or something like that. Like, yeah. Just, just wanted to see, you know. Mm-hmm. And like you're right, like you can predict, you can extrapolate your responses to low doses to responses at high doses. It's, it's not like you know the curve. Do it this way. It's not like the curve goes like this and all of a sudden like takes off. You know, yeah, and you know you're at you're, you get like ah middle response, and all of a sudden like you need to reach the magic number of you know two and a half grams, and boom, everything just changes. Yeah, um, but changing and there's the, always and then also the search for the, the the magic compound, right? Absolutely. You know, is it Tren? Is it Primo? Is it Stenbolone? Is it DHB? Is it Dimethazine? Is it whatever? You know. And there's going to be variable responses, but in general, I think, you know, your, your individual response is going to be relatively similar, um, regardless of what you use. And it may be very disparate compared to someone else, you know? And that's not, uh, that doesn't, that's not as exciting. You know what I mean? That's not not like, oh crap, all I needed to do was double the growth and I would be a pro, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's a lot more of an exciting answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I know we can't go into a deep dive here, but I, I would be curious if you had anything to say, Scott, on DC training, because you were you were a longtime DC guy, and I you know, I know you've mm-hmm. talked about that's kind of where uh, Fortitude evolved from um, DC training. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would love to hear just a little bit of of that story. Oh, how that all happened, um, like. I think we, we, for some reason I was thinking that question was related to the history of DC training, like how it came about. So yeah, I guess that's um, that's that's what I'm getting into. Like yeah, how, how yeah, I don't I don't know what so, we go ahead. So Dante was on um, a discussion board called Animal Kits. So this guy who's now hmm. passed on, he died three four years ago. Um, he was the first person to mass produce Trenbolone. Um, and Finiplex, all the, the cattle pellet kits so yes. you could extract Trendolone. Um, and those were the animal kits, and he made kits to do that. And so he had a discussion board that kind of supported that you could buy those kits to do. Yeah. You know, go down to your local agricultural supply place, and, you know, you're going to, you want you want your cattle to grow, right? So you buy a strip of Finiplex or you get it online, and then you could do that. So that was a pretty active, pretty hardcore bodybuilding board. And Dante had been on there for a while. This yeah. is how I understand it. Um, I would think I was a member on there, but I didn't pass. I didn't. I didn't um, post very much. Okay. Um, but Dante was a pretty active poster on that board, and he wanted to sort of just put out some of his ideas. Um, but people, he was notorious even at that time. This is like you know ninety nine two thousand. He'd been working with people in San Diego, and he decided, ah oh, man, shit, I want to just, I don't want to have to deal with these same numbskulls who come at me each time, you know, trying to just kind of troll my, my posts. I'm going to come up with a new name. Uh, fuck it. I'll just, just call myself dog crap, whatever. Yeah. So that's why I call myself dog crap. Um, not knowing that that cycle would, or that, sorry, that, that thread, which he called cycles for pennies. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that there's a cheaper way to go about cycling. He kind of grabs people's attention and mm-hmm. making progress. It doesn't, you don't have to, you know, um, sell your soul to the bank to make progress. So some mm-hmm. of that, that, that and it was, this is like probably, I think about it, this is probably the, the most 
this is probably the number one thread of all time on the discussion boards. The most yeah. famous bodybuilding thread I think there is. And it's, I would agree. It's archived all over the place. <clears throat> so he just laid down his thoughts. And people, some people figured out who he was eventually. Dante has kind of a unique writing style, especially when he starts writing in all caps and all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it's him. <laughs> you can't really hide. Um, but he wrote out basically the basis of, of dog crap training at that time. Yeah. Um, and sort of formalized it. And he was working with people. He started showing pictures of guys and that kind of stuff. And um, so I came across that. Um, I think I was still in California at the time. I just explained this on a podcast a couple of days ago. And I had actually sort of come, with the exception of the extreme stretches, I was doing a good bit of stretching, just figured that kind of made sense. I knew, I knew even then not to stretch excessively before I work out, but I always, I've always stretched before I train because I just feel old and decrepit if I don't. I feel like I'm going to hurt myself if I don't stretch out a little bit. I've always felt that way. Hmm. Kind of, um, maybe because I'm always sore. But um, I'd come to like a very similar split to the DC training two-way split. I was training a very, very similar way. Abbreviated, not as not as many working sets, a little of the same upper lower that was working best for me. And then I keep I hear about this dog crap training, and I went and I, I read about it, and I bastardized it first. I was trying to figure out, you know, remember Scott McDonough? No. Okay. He was a guy, um, you might, I'm sure you read his stuff. He was like, he was um, sort of Dante's acolyte. Oh, okay. He, yeah, he wasn't, I don't remember seeing, he wasn't like a really big guy, but he was a really, he was like the number one DC training fan Okay. for like a decade. And he would go over on the T Nation and he'd go on to Intense Muscle and I think you can find him on Professional Muscle and, and Bodybuilding.com and um, uh, what's the other word that's just awful? Um, it's still around. He went on Muscle Mayhem when that was around too. Muscle Mayhem was a great board. Okay. Um, and he would repost some of Dante's stuff and explain Dante's methodology to people because he he had it memorized. Like he was like a like a super fan. Yeah. Um, so I found Dante's stuff was being propagated by Dante in part, but by Scott McDonough as well. And I found what I thought was how to do DC training, and I tried. I tr- did as best I could. Um, and then I figured I was doing so many things kind of wrong, like um. Like I was doing like uh, um, I was going and someone re- wrote it this way. I would do like a rest pause set. So and then I do the the um, the the negative the accentuated negative at the end or pulse pulses for after the third um, segment of the rest pause set. And then I would go right into a stretch oh, immediately. So I would go right into it immediately, like without putting the weight down. I was yeah. I would try to do that. So, you know, I would like whatever say I do a, a pec deck. You know, I would do the three sets and then I'd do my stretch like, ah, and I want you to stay there. Yeah. And try to hold, hold it for a, for a minute. It's crazy. I got ridiculously sore. I eventually bet. I kind of figured, figured those, some of the, some of those things and that was overkill. And I ran into Dave Henry about that same time. And okay. um, he was training with high volume. I trained alongside of Dave. I've told that story before. And I, and he was trying to figure out how to, you know, cause he, Dave turned pro at like 167 pounds. Yeah. Right. This is before there was a two hundred two or two twelve. So he was trying to compete against or, the big boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. two ten. They're like you know. So Samuel just ruined that. You know, um, he won that like one and only show or something they had at the two ten. But so I suggested Dave like get a hold of Dante, and I think Dante might have he might have been a super mod on Intense Muscle. This is about the time when Intense Muscle. I was a super mod already, and maybe Dante wasn't there yet. I can't recall exactly the how it happened. How it all panned out but so then Dante started training Dave 
and I was doing whatever Dave was doing. It was just uh, an honor to be training with pro. Yeah. So I got to see, I see it on the emails and everything. I got to see how Dante manipulated things for Dave. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So that was really, really cool. You know, I should do whatever Dave did. And it, as it turned out, and I, I, there probably was some self-interest in this. I don't remember thinking like, I remember, I remember thinking like this training that Dave's doing is way too much for me. And Dave wasn't sure like really what to do. I said, maybe get a hold of this Dante guy. He's turning people into monsters. That's what you need. You need size. That's the big thing. You huh. need the size. Yeah. And I also knew because I'd done DC training. I was doing it before I ran into Dave. As best I could bastardize to figure it out. That that was a training split that worked really well for me. So I'm like, I can hang with this. I can do this. You know, just, you know, one or two working sets, three working sets. For, I can do that, right? Yeah. For a rest pause set. I can't do like... 25, 30 sets for legs and, and, and expect to come back and do that again, you know, five days later. Or whatever. No, especially so, the way you train, man. I like to train hard. I like to, you know, I like to go after it and, yeah. and train with Dave. This is the thing. Like Dave was stronger than me and Dave would do a set of 12 and he'd have two or three reps in the tank because he's, you know, laying off a little bit. We have 15 more sets and I would do a set of eight and then I would squeak out four five more reps just so I could beat Dave. Right. So, you know, <laughs> I did a Widowmaker every set. You know, right? And he was—he had three or four reps in reserve. That doesn't pan out well. I did not recover very well from. I bet from tackling that. So that's the—that's some early, you know, stuff. On, but Dante's is just basic principles. It's get as strong as humanly possible, as eugenics will allow, using bodybuilding movements and bodybuilding rep range. You're not trying to do triples and doubles and that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Eat. So that you support the muscle growth along the way. So you're not just trying to get strong, keep your weight the same. You don't have a weight class you're trying to stay in. You're trying to get as large as humanly possible. Um, and then he had some thoughts as far as PEDs too. I think he's changed a lot of that, you know, a yeah. lot of his ideas. But it wasn't like go to town and just use everything under the sun. Um, but the basic progressive overload principle was one that's been, I mean, that's been around since forever. Like that was a basic training principle that's used in every sport, but it hadn't really pervaded. And this is the big thing that, that Dante probably doesn't get enough credit for, I don't think. People that are in the know know this, but progressive overload became more of a mainstay of bodybuilding because of Dante. Yeah, I think I, I could see that. I could see that, really? and it's interesting to see that it kind of faded a little bit. You know, with like the the mid two thousand, like later two thousands. I think we went to like more volume, and and then it really came back in a big way. And I think Jordan has been a big part of that. In Jordan's education, a lot of that progressive stuff came from you, and that from you was affiliated with Dante as well. I'd say yeah. that. So I, I would say that you guys were a part of why it's so popular right now. You know, obviously yeah. Jordan discovered that, and then he just blew the frick up with it. You know, mm -hmm. so that that's a pretty good sales pitch in itself. But just yeah. like just like when Justin Harris blew up, right? You know, mm -hmm. I think I mean like literally. When I started doing DC training, I had already, I think I, I'd finished my PhD. Yeah. Right. So, like progressive overload, you know, I've been teaching classes on, 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 on that with that. That was not new to me. Like that's what I was yeah. doing in my training. I was logbooking and everything. Like the whole, like that was like okay. this is how you have to do this shit if you want to get somewhere. Yeah. This doesn't make any. I don't have the genetics. Just go in there and just get a good pump, you know, and just grow like a weed and come back bigger and better every single time I come in. So that made made total sense to me. Yeah. Um, right off the bat. And that's why, that's why I'm like, this program is great. I like this. this is, I already know this is going to work because what I'm doing has been working, but it's got these not novel twists. The rest pause was a really nice thing. Yeah. You know, and he took, he took that term from Mike Mentzer. He had another 
mm. formulation of a cluster set. Um, and the stretching, you know, was, was, was a novel introduction. Um, and like, like with Jordan, um, I don't I'm trying to remember how Jordan was training before we got together, but, um, I had a lot of people came to me like, cause I was the official DC trainer for a little while. So people would come to me for DC training, mm-hmm. um, or Dante would send me those folks. But Jordan came to me, wasn't long after a, a contest, I think maybe a month after when we started something like that. And he hadn't had a massive rebound. I don't think, but we went from like 218 to, I think we got to like 285 or something like that. In a That's year. a huge jump. And it was solid. It was solid too. It wasn't like 285 <laughs> fat, you know? He's he's a fucking machine, man. He's just like he's like the he was like the perfect bodybuilding machine. I just like you know all I had to do was like keep those basic principles. We were doing DC training, just keep those basic principles, and and he would execute whatever. Like there's no there's no play, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's that's DC training is just really well thought out and formulated. It's really effective. It will work for a lot of people, especially those who don't make progress just going in there and trying to follow a high volume approach. And eventually people are going to have to train beyond, you know, one or two reps. They're going to have to go to failure. Yeah. Um, there as a side, like a last note on this, maybe we got time for maybe one more question afterwards, but there's a meta analysis that just came out, um, putting together, uh, a lot of the research that's looked into to what extent, especially untrained people or even trained people as well. Um, actually leave reps in the tank. Oh really? Um, oh yeah, yeah. What, that's what right. That's right. Loads are. Victoria mm-hmm. mentioned this to me, and she was like, "You should tell Scott about this." You already heard. Yeah, it. stronger by science. That's that's how I saw it. it. Came across. I subscribed to them. Okay. So they, um, I can't remember who it was. Who maybe it was Eric Helms. I can't remember if it was Eric or, or, or Greg Knuckles. But um, anyway, they uh, literally most people were picking something in the fiftieth, fifty percent, fifty to sixty percent of one rep max as their load. And they're leaving a lot of reps in the tank when they're doing like sets of eight to 10, you know, 50, 50 to 60, like 56, 58, 59%, like less than 60%. Yeah. Um, the load. So, I mean, like the, the title was most people likely training too light. Um, and I, I tell you, I've said this a million times, you know, this too, like you go into a gym and I mean, you don't see people like training, like their life depends on You just don't see that happening. You get looked at weird in a lot of gyms if you are training that way. You know what I mean? That? Yeah, you can. Yeah, I, I don't pay attention. I kind of, I guess. I'm, yeah, you're right. I I know that, and I just don't even look because I know yeah. I'll be looked at strangely. Yeah, but, it's just, but it, it's like people. It's almost like it's not, it's not socially acceptable to train like your life is on the line. You know, at a commercial yeah. standard commercial gym. I'm not saying every mm-hmm. gym is like that. You know. Yeah. I remember you made me think there was a gym somewhere in, I think it was in Gainesville. I was visiting a friend in Gainesville and it was like a world gym or the old gym was a big, at that time it was a big box gym, but you know, for the hardcore crowd, so to speak. And it was doing like T-bar rows in the corner or something. And it was a big weight and I make noise, you know, when I train, I think I, you know, like I think I went, yeah, or something like that, you know, like at the end of my set. And the manager came over and said, you're, you're cursing during your sets. If you do it again, we'll kick you out. Like, cursing? Cursing. And she thought I was saying the F word. Or he, maybe. I can't remember if it was a man or woman. Huh. But yeah. And it was just because I was just making noises. And it sounds like he's got, that has to be an expletive. He yeah. must be cursing, right? He sounded I'm mad. Like, I I, I, yeah. I mean, I was putting my rage in there and whatever else that was fueling me on that particular day. But it was loud and noisy and like totally out of the ordinary. Yeah. Like, what can that guy be possibly saying? He must be saying, like, 
shit. The F-bomb. Or yeah. The F-bomb or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. So people weren't like, what the fuck, you know? They just thought I must be cursing because it was like, so I think it's so out of the ordinary for that gym. I was just there for like one day. Yeah. I was out of town training there. But um, so anyway, this it's interesting to see like there's so many studies that now substantiate this that most people aren't training in that way. And the thing is like, if you consider that, if you're always training, and these were um, advanced trainees as well. That's okay. the interesting thing. Yeah. The, the trained individuals didn't differ from the untrained in that much. You, you're basically just accommodating. So it fits with this whole schema of untrained people make really, really great gains. And then those plateau after, you know, a year or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you're, you're still, so there's two, kind of two sides to progressive overload. One, you're pushing the weight, but you have to have the adaptation backing it up. So you try to get more and then you adapt and that allows you to try to try and succeed to get more and then you adapt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so your, your progression keeps pace with your adaptations. But a lot of what happens with untrained people is they're just simply adapting just the fact that the stress is so novel in the first place. Yeah. It's not because they have to push the progressive overload. Like a, a newbie who's six weeks in, it's not like they have to say, okay, here we go. I'm going to try to get like one more right. rep on this. Like there's right. not this math. They just do because you're, you're adapting. All anyway. their reps so, are effective reps at the, you know, rep one yeah. is the effective rep at the start. And they're, and they're improving every workout or every week. You know, they don't have to really push that other side of the coin where you're like, you know what, I'm going to get some hell or high water. I'm going to get, a, you know, two more reps on this set or I'm going to load 10 more, 10 more pounds on this bar or what have you. Yeah. So even, even trained individuals are still operating that, in that zone of comfort, right? In many cases, not this everyone. This is the single most it, important thing I think anybody can pick up from this podcast. It really is. Mm -hmm. It's the single yeah. most important thing. If you're not already at your goals to think that yeah. we're only training 50 to 60% on average, you know, mm -hmm. of what we're capable of. What does that tell us? You know, I, th I yeah, think that's why that, Ron said recently on a podcast, he said that uh, the, the reason he's not a fan of reps and reserve is because most people don't know what failure is. They aren't, they aren't doing enough to get to that last two reps. Now, if I would, I think reps and reserve would be great if we were working with like a hundred percent of what we were capable of, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that was actually one of the conclusions. I just read the, the brief summary. Yeah. Um, and then I went right to the, the research because I like to read the, read the paper itself first. But one of the, was that, you know, this is an advantage of, especially as you're trained, more trained of training to failure, because chances are your training to failure is actually reps in reserve. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, it truly, it truly is. So, so, you know, we contextualize this wow. aspect, you know, right. And, and there are obviously lots of exceptions to this. And a lot of our listeners are going to be probably even above the average trained individual in those studies. Probably. Because those trained individuals in those studies are also people. And this was just, these are just short-term studies. Um, Long-term studies, just hard to get really trained people in there because one, they've already made massive gains. So any changes that, with any variable that you're manipulating are going to be itsy bitsy. Yeah. It's probably immeasurable and statistically insignificant. Um, and plus, those people don't want their programs fucked with. Yeah. Because they've been, tra they've been training for so long. Um, but if you think about then that a lot of people are not really – they don't have the stimulus in place. If we take this on face value, if we take this idea that people are training too light yeah. in a very general way, you don't have the stimulus in place. Well, then, like, you don't have your X's and O's where they need to be to where it makes any sense. Should you be doubling your growth hormone? 
you know? Should, there you go. Should you be, you know, manipulating all these other things? Those things will get you somewhere, mm-hmm. right? You know, in some way, shape, or form. But you're still, you still got the cart in front of the horse, you know, as far as ultimately getting where you could possibly go. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it was pretty it was really kind of fascinating to see the science back up what you see literally just go in the gym like go in any gym and look around and some gyms you'll see people getting after it but like place like metroflex right, right everyone's going to town like going going bonkers but your average gym like even people that have been there for years they're not they're not training all that hard you don't see people just going for broke and the science suggests that as well that that's a very odd thing to see someone who really knows how to how to push like that. Um, yeah. So, man, we could answer yeah, more questions, a, but sorry. honestly, that's a great place to end this because I think that that really that's the most important thing that any of us need to hear right now. Any of us, I don't care who you are. <laughs> You're training like a pussy. Get after it. <laughs> yeah, I know you had a story we were talking about before the show. Oh. Did, did we have time to tell that, or you, you want to wrap this yeah. thing up? Either it's a, okay. It's, it was a Germany story because we talked about Germany, you know, before before we started. started. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so when I when I got to Germany the first time I was there as a foreign exchange student, um, and all the foreign exchange shirts would kind of cluster around, um, and so I found out that I was not the first person that this happened to later on. So there was a gym we found, a fitness studio, and. Um, the guy who ran the place, we called him the Bald Bull. He was like five foot two, really big bodybuilder. Um, always, were, you know, was covered up with like double sweatshirt, but he was a big yeah. dude. He was a big dude anyway. And all of us Amis, the Ameri- Americans, went over there um, to work out. There was like three or four of us that, that trained. So, and he didn't like having us there, right? Okay. This, I guess this happened like each of the foreign exchange. There's always be three or four of them to come in there and um, didn't really want to sell you a membership, you know? Um, and, uh, so I had traveled around, um, backpacked around Europe for like a, a month. So I hadn't trained for a month. which really made no zero sense to try to do that when I was just in a new country every other day, whatever. So I'm like, okay, I go in the gym. I finally get through paying the membership, you know, um, very reluctantly. He lets me join the gym. And I go over and they had um, the brand of equipment was called Schnell. And it's kind of very European. There was an incline press. That was looked like it was available. No one was working on it, um, and really the uprights on this thing were like this far apart. Like they're barely at shoulder. In fact, one of the guys who had pretty broad shoulders, he really couldn't use them because he just keep on banging to these uprights. They're okay. not way out like a typical rack would be. They're really really narrow, and that's important for the story. And someone had just left the thing loaded, and they had left it loaded with like ten kilo plates on the inside and twenty kilo plates on the outside. Okay, right. So that's, that's like 185, roughly, something like that. And I wasn't going to start with that first time in. I'm going to just warm up, you know, take, I'm not going to jump right to that. It was a really high incline, too. So not thinking about the physics of this, right, I go to un, unrack that thing, and I pull a 20-kilo plate off of one side, and because this thing is so narrow, the other side tips down. Oh, boom, no. It's the ground falls right into the mirror crash oh and you were hardly almost not <laughs> invited in freaking thing i did i did. <laughs> the first thing i did was break a mirror right someone left it loaded like so what i would have had to done is slide the thing over you know and take the plate off and slide it back and yeah. someone had loaded it backwards with the lighter plates on the inside and uh. the on the outside so it's like someone set me up for the trap or some shit right yeah yeah who knows it might have been yeah. so <laughs> 
So the so the the, the bald bull, um, I can't remember his name, but he comes over, um, oh. and he just he just he walks. I'm like, I'm like, oh shit, you know. Start trying to clean stuff up, you know. It's just my, my face is probably red as a stop sign. Like this oh. is just awful. Yeah. He comes over and, and I and I say, took me I was trying to apologize myself, and he apologize or uh, apologize. Excuse myself, and he just says, "Does cost guilt." Like, that, that costs money. That costs money. <laughs> That's all I said. Yeah. I'm like, I know. It's like, I, I said, I have insurance, you know, because I did have insurance. And literally, it was, but it took a while to get that all to pass through. I had insurance, but it's back in the U.S. And they had to communicate with his insurance and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And every day I came in, every day I came in, if he was there, which is most of the time, he's like, Vos mein Geld. <laughs> Where's my money? <laughs> like, you know, like, I had to fucking deal with that every time I walk in there. Oh, like, my God. I hadn't paid for the mirror. And literally, it was like the last week I was there. Yeah. And finally, the money went through. And then I left back home. Jeez, but I got man. Down. But the thing was, I was telling this story like a week later. Yeah. And there was an Australian guy. Yeah. Who had been there six months. So he was on it. I was just there for six months. He was there um, for a full year. And... I told the story and he just listened the whole time and I'm like, oh man, this is so embarrassing. And he's like, he's like, Scotty, and this guy was super cool. He's like, he's like, he's like, bloke, I did the same thing the first day I was there <laughs> six months. <laughs> he did the exact same thing on the same machine, right? You would think that so they would had, move this machine or something, you know what I mean? Right, like, or, or like it just, and the, the it was just that the uprights were like this far apart. It wouldn't yeah. have been a problem. It would have been okay, balanced okay. If they had them spread out, okay, right, yeah, yeah. But for whatever reason, Schnell made their stuff like that. I don't know why it's cheaper. They save saving on on steel, you know. Yeah, or who yeah. knows what? It just was asking for for, for that to happen. So Man. that's why I was he was especially pissed at me because I had done what had just been. It literally had just gotten that mirror replaced. Yeah, it had been replaced just like been cracked the entire time. The mirror was cracked for a long time. Finally, they replaced it. Yeah. Um, I think while I was still there, but then he had, of course he had to get his, it was like a thousand dollars or something like that. You know? Oh my God. So yeah, it was a nice, it was a big mirror, but they wanted to replace the whole What thing. a nice welcome to the gym <laughs> too. I mean, yeah. God. I know. That's I know. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was, was a good my, story. That was worth, that yeah. was worth telling at the end here. Okay. Guys, uh, I didn't mention it at the beginning, but definitely check out fortitudetraining.net. And um, I mean, Scott, you've shared so much cool stuff. I missed you. I missed you. And I I missed hearing your perspectives. Um, And to get more of those perspectives, your book is absolutely filled with that stuff. So if you guys enjoy this podcast, the book is absolutely well worth every single penny. You can learn so much from it. Be your own bodybuilding coach. You can go to byobbcoach.com or check out Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach on Amazon. Uh, I believe on Barnes and Noble as well. You guys can get the hardcover there. Uh, check out our sponsors, truenutrition.com. True Nutrition has, they were the first sponsor for anything that we've done. First Advice is Radio and now Think Big. They are the company that believed in what we do long before anybody else got on board. Uh, so I appreciate them and you can shop with them. And you, and when you do, you know that you'll get high quality supplements 
Use our code THINK to let them know that you support what we're doing here and that their money's going to somewhere of value. You know what I mean? That their advertising dollars are working. Um, and of course, uh, Strom Sports Nutrition, for those of you in the UK, great health uh, supplements over there, some performance stuff, and uh, supplementsource.ca in Canada. I recently saw um, the Granite Recovery product for $20 a tub oh. on closeout. So if you're in Canada... Uh, you can get really good deals up there from supplementsource.ca. I'm somebody who loves a freaking deal, Scott. So that's music to my ears. Yeah. You know what I mean? $20 go. for a good intra workout recovery product. Yeah, that's a good product too. Yeah, yeah. So for another episode of Muscle Minds, guys, if you have questions for Scott, if you have some thoughts, some ideas, any deep dives you want us to get into, uh, you know, let us know. Comment. And, of course, comment on Patreon. Patreon questions always get uh, preference. And, uh, you know, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Scott. We appreciate having you back, man. Peace.